Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. Today is the 16th of the 10th, and we are back after a short absence caused entirely by the failings of my co-host. Michael, how have you been? I think that's a little unkind. But is it untrue? I would go so far as to say it's untrue. I contracted COVID, and it made me unwell. I think to describe that as a failing is to push your kind of psychotic lack of empathy just that little bit too far. I mean, you put it as a negative, but Michael, we all know it's a positive. Give you something to complain about, about your free trip to Italy. I never complain. It's a principle of mine. I sometimes make trenchant and unstinting observations about the failings of institutions and others, but I never complain. I am relentlessly upbeat. Those are certainly the words I think of when I think of you, Michael. Relentlessly upbeat. I mean, they follow a series of other words that we won't go into right here, but they're definitely in the sentence. There might be spaces and gaps in there. Anyway, yes, I have recovered uh, from my COVID, so I'm safe to be around. Well, as safe as I ever was. We will go on. Yes, we will go. We will go on as long as we are allowed to go on and the universe permits us to. So we, I think, are going to talk about cancel culture and Graham Norton's comments on it. But first, I wanted to just touch on something that I haven't seen talked about in the Irish media, but it's been heavily covered in the international media. And actually, at this point, maybe it has been covered in the media. We're recording this before the Sunday papers go out, so I wouldn't be surprised if they touch on it. And that is the... Um, the Biden administration's movements on the supply of certain semiconductor and um, chip components to China. Yes, I saw this. Uh, I only saw this yesterday. Well, then again, it pretty well only happened yesterday before yesterday. This, as it was described in a number of different places, the practical effect of it seems to be the people who had the choice, Americans have had the choice of either staying in China and staying in business or basically losing their citizenship. Now, that doesn't sound like a sanction. That sounds like a fairly large overreach. But my understanding is that legally, that's not really how it's being described, even if that is the practical effect, is that? No, and I mean, I, I've heard the same thing, people saying that Americans working in China will have to give up their citizenship if they want to continue in their industry. And it's hard to tell what's accurate and what's overblown about that. At the heart of it, what these are is export controls. Um, so US businesses cannot sell certain things to China, and they can't provide certain services to China. Now, those services and sales are mostly in relation to AI technology, advanced computing, weapons technology, which are all fields that the Americans, they've been trying for years to make certain things more difficult for Chinese industries, particularly in relation to weapon technology. Um, and part of that is, is just because they see China as a competitor, and part of that is because they see China as benefiting from not quite a state-sponsored regime of industrial espionage, but not very far from it. Um, and we've seen interference like this before. I mean, one of the Chinese are substantially behind the Americans in, the, in chip technology. And part of that is because the Americans have stopped anyone selling certain advanced technologies to them for a while. But this is, um, this is massively beyond the size and scale of anything we've seen before. China is something like six, they said six years behind, seven years behind. And it, that's like dog years. That if you're a couple of years behind in this business, you're just like in a different century because of the nature of the way these things evolve. So the Chinese just aren't really in the same ballpark. So they really are, they, for lots of really high end stuff, the Chinese just really rely on the Americans for this kind of technology. Yeah, I mean, you'd have, there would be companies like um, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company um, who would be very, very advanced on this. 
And yeah, they would be ahead, miles ahead of what the Chinese can produce. But part of the reason they're miles ahead um, is that you have... Okay, this is, this is slightly complicated. There's a company called AMSL, and it is it supplies um, the machines you need to make exceptionally high-level chips. And the Americans, for a couple of years, have basically been going to AMSL and saying that if you... Uh, sell to the Chinese, we will exclude you from the US market entirely. And they've been doing that to other, um, not chip manufacturers, but the people who make the uh, the tech you need to make these chips. So basically, China has been throttling the, um, or sorry, America has been throttling Chinese development on this front for a long time. But they haven't done anything of this nature. Like, this is just a large-scale ban. Do you know before World War II, the Americans were fucking around with the Japanese and their access to gasoline. Yes, it was oil was the big thing. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of got that feeling to it. If, I was talking to a colleague of ours the other day, and, yeah, last night rather, and it's, I said to me, this just feels like from shall we say, from uh, the uninformed, technically uninformed uh, perspective, as a pure power move. This is just an absolute slap down. Power. Jordan Schneider is a, a guy that. I, I have I follow on Twitter and he's apparently he he always makes sense to me he's very interesting he writes well but he talks he, he's a a China analyst and a tech guy and the way he described this was an, an annihilation that the China semiconductor manufacturing industry was reduced to zero overnight complete complete collapse no chance of survival now this he's a very balanced guy usually like he's not he's not he's not he he doesn't tend to go for hysterics. If that is even partly true, I mean this is just again a point he makes. He said Trump had four years of basically performance of sanctions, standing up inverted commas standing up to China. He said in comparison, this is just like a heavyweight boxer going up against a featherweight and just hounding him. This is a real pure savage power move. But why, Gary? Why now? What's going on? I, I can't speak to the truth of that because it's it's difficult to see what the actual long term impact of this is going to be. In the short term, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty devastating. But I mean, the U.S. has left a little bit of a door open in that companies can ask to be allowed to supply things to China Chinese companies. We'll see if that's actually if those permissions are given out or if that's basically just a carrot that's held over China. Yeah. But this is, there has been talk about this for a long time. I heard, first heard talk about this, I think, either the start of this year or the end of last year, like serious talk about it. But it was it was considered to be you know, an extreme step to take. But the US has increasingly come to view China as it is its long-term opponent. The White House puts out a strategy document. Um, it's required to put out a strategy document. And the last one that they put out uh, talks about how China is the only opponent possible opponent to the US-led order who has the capability and the desire to change that order. So there has been, they recognize Russia as an immediate threat because they see it as a threat to international norms, but there's been an increasing shift to China is in the long term, the actual 
serious threat here. It is the most consequential threat. And when you look at certain thing areas like AI, I mean, everything is called AI, but usually it's just machine learning. Advances are now coming rapidly enough, and the military is now sufficiently interested in what some of those advances mean for them, that there is a desire to make sure that China doesn't get there. Um, Also, I mean, you've seen the Chinese roll out things like some of the um, trial runs they've done of social care, of social scores, um, some of the cities we've seen in Xinjiang, where you basically got surveillance cities yes. built on machine um, learning, and there's been a desire there to stop the the Chinese. But a large part of this is just pure power. China is an opponent. The, the Americans can do this. I think part of it has been uh, Russia. They saw the actual impact that um, sanctions had on Russia, and they were beyond what had been expected, but also even where they were not as effective the west as a whole backed them and that is one of the problem with doing something like this because you can put up this barrier and say if you breach this we'll block your access to our market but how do you make sure that your trading partners don't en masse ignore you there is an interesting little problem here in that a lot of the raw materials to make electronics come from china or countries who are inside the chinese sphere of influence uh, primarily in africa these are we talking about the famous rare earth me- rare earth elements or rare earth me- metals, those things? Yeah, I mean, like China is the world's largest producer of silicone, and it's not even close. The thing to remember there is that you would expect a response from the Chinese. God knows what that response is going to be, but they're not going to see this as export controls. These are clearly sanctions aimed at decapitating uh, an industrial sector in China at a time when the Chinese government does not need a sector failing. No, I mean, the, the Chinese economy, from many perspectives, looks like it's in very, very serious trouble indeed. The, the, the financial sector, I mean, we, we've been hearing talk about for a long time now, and, some, and we've seen some outcomes re, in, the, in the last few months of problems in banks. Uh, we've seen, and we've been waiting for, shall we say, the, the resolution of what seem to be structural problems in their, in their property market. There are misallocations of resources all over a fairly inevitable consequence of a managed centrally managed economy all over the place so when the whole world is heading into recession and they already have these serious structural problems the chinese economy is in a fairly powerless state the last thing it needs is something like this to come on there was a story i think i mentioned to you there which came out uh, uh, maybe I don't, a week ago you know the iranians are supplying the russians with these shahid drones because they've been basically running out of their own drones and the ukrainians caught there was a story true or false there was a story reported last week that one of these drones had been found mostly intact and inside the they found some chinese components and inside the chinese components they found some american chip technology and there had been a suspicion for some time that the chinese were going were shall we say avoiding or evading even some of the sanctions uh the tech sanctions that uh regarding the sale of say certain kinds of technologies and chips and whatever to the russian and this was this was uh this was not good news for the chinese and that there's a is, do you think it's in some way possible that that was maybe a trigger that the idea that the chinese are not being as supportive as they need to be when it comes to Russia, that this is a way of strong-arming them? There's a Russian saying that sometimes what is is necessary is also beneficial. And so, yeah, there may be an element to which they want to chide the Chinese for not uh, coming out more aggressively against the the Russian action in um, the Ukraine. But this, 
if that is happening, I'd say it's a relatively minor concern. There have been, there's been an increased talk about what's called decoupling in the last while um, amongst American uh, political figures, particularly about China, which is to say that they want to disentangle themselves from China because they're starting to view it more uh, as a hostile competitor. And they know that they are currently very dependent upon it, both because American companies are so heavily invested there and because they take so much of um, the precursor goods from China to, to build some of their own things. So I think a large part of it is actually just to move away from reliance on China, which is traditionally in in, you know, in relation to peace, a pretty bad thing because it's very difficult to have a war with someone you're very coupled with. Whereas the more you're decoupled, the easier it becomes. The Chinese hold, if memory serves, a bit over a trillion dollars worth of US debt. They hold US, they've, they've been buying US treasury securities fairly steadily for the last 20, 30 years now. And right now they have, like I said, around a trillion dollars worth of that. Like, that's a fair risk for the Americans that if the, the Chinese were to decide in retaliation that they're going to start dumping the debt and the, the effect that that potentially would have on the dollar. And again, just a general destabilization of global markets at a time when global markets really don't need another destabilizing factor. It is, but that's also a card you really only get to play once. And to put that in perspective, yes, it's a, it's a staggering sum of money. But the U.S. national debt is somewhere in the region of thirty-one trillion at the minute. Yeah, it's around three, three and a half percent. The Chinese hold around three, three and a half, three, three and a half percent of the ex, of external U.S. debt. So it's a lot, but it's not that. I suppose it's a lot, but it's not that much. It's a huge amount, but it's not that much. And the thing there is, the more debt and investment from America that you hold, the more you can try and use it to influence people or to prevent further action on this area. Whereas if you liquidate it all, yes, you will hurt them, and you could hurt them incredibly badly, but you will also destroy your own leverage. And the other thing to remember is that it's moving away from it rather deliberately, but Chinese wealth is still in largely dependent upon selling things to other countries as basically a um, it, it produces things. It has a growing service sector, but it needs people to sell to. And if it drives the US into recession, the US can buy less of its stuff. So then it might drive itself into recession. I think there, yeah, I think that's the, that is potentially the, one of the key discoveries of the whole Russia-Ukraine thing has been, the West has, in a sense, rediscovered its own power. For years now, I, I've been talking to people who, just relentless talk, oh, well, China's so powerful and China's so big and then India and then the, the other developing and sort of middle-level developed economies and the, the West is in decline. I think that we had internalized an exaggerated understanding of our, our the West's importance or unimportance or declining importance in the world economy. The fact is, as you say, China is massive and it's growing, and it has a, a developing service industry, and it's got a, a burgeoning middle class as well. Although I, I still think that the long-term bet is India, but that's another whole other thing. But the reality is, when you add in the, 
Europe and the United States and Canada and Australia and New Zealand. And the West, by the way, people may not get this, also includes Japan, uh, South Korea, Singapore, places like that. They are also included in the West. We still are the place that these people have to sell their shit to. And if you, if you really, if you really go after those economies and you reduce their capacity to consume, significant, you're, it is very, and also, by the way, obviously, if they start dumping debt and the dollar starts declining, well, then the value that they, they hold in that debt will also decline. So it is a double example of cutting off your nose to spite your face. If your economy is based on selling stuff to the West and the West stops buying your stuff because of stuff you've done to the West, well, you know, it's not maybe the best strategy. Or at the very least, it's a problematic one. I, I would suspect over the short term what will actually happen here is that because this was being talked about, the more cautious Chinese firms will have been stockpiling equipment and trying to skill up their own people to do some of the service. So in the short term, it'll be interesting to see what this does. And then in the long term... Yes, it'll it'll slow them down, and I mean it could slow them down substantially. But they're also going to look for ways to get around it. So you're going to see: Can you run something through Turkey, for instance? Can you run it through Russia? Can you get uh, material into one of those and then through to China without triggering these things? Or is the White House going to be fairly generous with the amount of permissions it gives out? Okay. There's a lot of different ways this could play. But personally, I'm most interested to see how China reacts to this. Because the Chinese themselves are pretty fond of finding reasons to put uh, export controls on certain things. But I'm not clear how much space they have. But on the point you were making there about the West and decline, the West's problem has never been capability. It's been the will to use it. Yes. And the Chinese have long had the will to use it. But now I'm not quite sure how much capability they have to respond to this in a way that doesn't hurt them. Or at least doesn't hurt them so badly that they're not that they're in a position to to take that hurt right now gary there are so many on so many variables operating within the the global economy any one of which could lead to a global recession that if they all come together it's just horrible i mean there's stuff here we're talking about very very high end tech stuff right way down the other side which people aren't talking about a whole lot. You've got the the fact that we have issues regarding potash and potassium and, and nitrogen production, which when we get into planting season next year is going the, the price of fertilizer globally and the availability, the short, I mean, there may be actually not just massive price hikes, but serious shortages of fertilizer that you may be looking at actual global food shortages rather than misdistributions and failures in distribution of food surpluses, which has historically been the problem in, in the world for quite some time now. There's uh, post the, the fact that we, we still haven't sorted out the bottlenecks and the, and, and the problems that occurred during COVID. We haven't had an opportunity to deal with those. There's so many things going on now. The fact that we're dealing with what, 10 years or more of ridiculously loose uh, fiscal policy, financial policy, and not just low interest rates, but negative interest rates of quantitative easing. And now we're dealing with a, a global problem with inflation, which is going to require significant increases in interest rates, which by, just by themselves would lead normally 
inevitably to a contraction in economic activity. Uh, there's a lot going on there, Gary. And none of it is stuff that makes you feel happy. If it makes you feel any better, we probably won't have a nuclear war. There's another one we've thrown. We're, we're actually talking seriously for the first time in how long when we're not talking about North Korea doing something crazy. We're actually talking about a, 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 a power seriously threatening the use of a nuclear weapons. You see, the problem there, Michael, is that, um, and this might surprise people, but nuclear weapons aren't actually all that efficient. I mean, if you want to kill a massive amount of people and they're in a very tight geographical location and they're not going to move, yeah, they're very useful. But as an actual military weapon, as opposed to you know, a shock and awe kind of thing, they're actually not very good. The The estimates of how many nuclear weapons you would need to fight off a battalion are ludicrous. Like You simply wouldn't bother. You know, you're talking about the use of a, a, a tactical nuclear weapon. As opposed to a strategic, like the strategic nuclear weapon is designed basically to take out a city, whereas the, the tacticals are, be, are something that will be used on, on the battlefield. And one of the points that was made several months ago by, say, people like Petraeus and Ben Hodges, American generals, was that and, uh, that kind of tactical weapon would be if you were talking about if a, a massed army in a small restricted space of two or three hundred thousand men and you could just drop a bomb on that then you could do severe damage but that's not what you're looking at in the ukraine in the ukrainian uh, battle scenario you're looking at very dispersed numbers of small small groups and it would have tremendously little effect in fact one of them pointed out, i said that when the problems say with people talk about using a dirty bomb it'd be far more effective to get four or five people in times square with submachine guns you kill far more people but it is frightening. It people frighten the idea of it a very frightening thing. I think naturally enough. So I understand that it's not effective, but it's still, it's still kind of oh my good fuck, how crazy is this guy? I know maybe he's not crazy at all. And we are told the Americans have spoken, and not just the Americans, but a number of NATO groups and maybe the French as well have spoken directly to their counterparts in Russia and have sent a list of things, we will do this to you if you launch a nuclear weapon. Something like, within 48 hours, using only conventional forces, we will destroy all the Russian forces that are present in Ukraine right now. We will sink the Black uh, Sea fleet. We will launch cyber attacks across Russia, which will just cripple your infrastructure. This kind of thing that they have made very clear that were Putin to make that choice, it would essentially be him signing his suicide note, that he would get no benefit from it and it would destroy him. When you start looking at smaller nuclear weapons, the sort that you would use against an actual military force, usually an artillery barrage or some sort of thermobaric bombing would be far more effective, or at least as effective. There was a piece in, I think it was the... I'll find it and I'll link it below. I think it was the Inst the International Institute for Strategic Studies. It was looking at the American plans from 1977 yeah. uh, on how they would protect a 60-mile-long front. And a 60-mile-long front, if that was a battlefield, they were planning 136 nuclear strikes Jesus. to control that. So at that point, you're using hundreds of nuclear weapons and you're going to achieve very little for it. I mean, if you wanted... Yes, you could attack a city, but then you're screwed because no one is going to sit by and let you do that. Smaller ones, you've broken the nuclear taboo 
and you haven't really gotten anywhere, particularly when you could just gas them. Which is, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, whenever they're going to target, where are they going to use these? If you're talking about the, the, the fear of uh, post-incident radioactive fallout, that kind of thing. First of all, there's n- we have no reason to believe that Russian the Russian soldiers who would be in the same theatre w- would be equipped with the kind of equipment which would protect them from fallout. And they're going. It's going to be a matter of some places forty or fifty miles from Mother Russia itself and citizens of the Russian Federation who would be more immediately affected by that kind of fallout than anybody, say, in Western Europe, potentially. So we don't know how well it would go down with Russia. Also, is there not a strong belief that were he to do something like this, whatever about North Korea or Iran, that the Chinese would drop him like a hot snot? You'd have that risk. You'd also have the risk that if you start using nuclear weapons that NATO decides that this is no longer an acceptable risk and responds with nuclear weapons. And then you would run the problem of, well, if you use a tiny nuclear weapon, has effectively no military benefit to you, and then that ends with a mass bombing of your own country with nuclear weapons, you're not really in a winning position. Like, this is the problem here. They're weapons of deterrence and of spectacle. They are not designed for this kind of war, unless you're willing to just wipe out a city. And even then, like, Hiroshima and Nagasaki got back to it pretty quickly. Now, different bombs different things but the common perception of nuclear weapons versus the reality of them they're horrible weapons but they're not they don't just annihilate everything they're pointed at so we probably won't have a nuclear war because frankly if you're going to breach a taboo you'd probably breach the taboo on biological or or weapons and you just gas gas i would say was the most likely because even biological then you you have the same problems with nuclear of the the problem of containment. Yeah, I mean, like, Russia has access to things like um, VX, which is not a good way to die, but also can deny area because you, you spray it over an area and it droplets of it remain. So I think it's, it's, it's not a pleasant thing, but they have it. So, like, if you're going to breach a taboo, breach that one first because that's actually militarily useful to you. And if you're looking to break an opponent's will, bombing a residential area runs a high risk of actually uh, increasing the Ukrainian will to fight. Whereas, you know, just a lot of people just um, dying due to VX is, uh, that's going to leave a mark. This is unhappy stuff. But getting back just briefly, just to finish it up, the, 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 the thing about the, the, uh, the American sanctions uh, on China, I, you have to think that what right now we really don't know what's going on. We don't know if this is a power move, which they're going to wait to see what the reaction for the Chinese were. And then having made the move, having shown that they have the capacity and the will to do it if they want, that they may just come back from it. They may relent. They may get the kind, they may get, they may have a specific concession from the Chinese that they have already got in mind. And once they've achieved that, they go back to the status quo. But now a status quo where people understand that they have this gun in their holster and they're willing to use it. So walk carefully and pay attention. Or if this is more like a a long-term policy, which is aimed at really undermining China and the Chinese tech industry. I don't, for people, for us to speculate at this point in this instance is kind of pointless. The next little while is going to be very interesting. And what the Chinese do next as well. 
And we'll see. Uh, I'm As I said, I haven't seen it in the Irish papers yet, including the business papers, which is a bit weird. But um, I, it, maybe it's in the Sunday editions. But it will it will likely be highly impactful. Anyway, we wanted to talk about um, Graham Norton and cancel culture. Graham Norton recently came out and said that can- cancel culture isn't exist and that it should be referred to as instead uh, people having to accept accountability for the things they've said. Yeah, no, I think... Some of the people commenting on it said that actually that's not re- that, and I don't know if I, that actually wasn't that he's saying the cancer culture didn't exist so much as yeah that he was overstated and but I think yes ultimately the synthesis of his point is that it's a question of taking account of accountability and accepting that there you have free speech but that there are consequences for things that you say and that you have to accept those consequences that some, if people don't like what you say that they will react to it and you may have outcomes that you don't enjoy from it i think it's very easy for someone like graham norton who has never struck me as being a particularly political person before i don't know for someone like him where i can't imagine that he has any opinion from what i've seen or heard of him that would lead him to become the object of a twitter mob or a cancel mob so therefore, it's fairly easy to say, "Oh well, you know, these are just hysterics." This is also particular. This is the particularly in the context of the comments that were made by John Cleese and also by J.K. Rowling, and in the in which is obviously an unfair example. J.K. Rowling is one of the richest women in the world. She must be surely. She's certainly one of the richest, if you not probably the richest writer in the world at that level. She was. Somebody said some some person on Twitter. Uh, I said, asked her uh, how she slept at night and how, now how did she feel about having lost or something? No, I think it was how did she feel that she had lost a whole generation of readers because of the positions she had taken? And she responded to the effect that she, she consoled herself by reading her royalty checks. And the pain went away quickly. And the pain went away very quickly. Groucho Marx once famously said she just cried all the way to the... Or Liberace, sorry, said he cried all the way to the bank. And John Cleese, again, I mean, who's going to cancel this day? John Cleese, for a start. He's a man more, shall we say, in the autumn or winter of his career. But he's so well established, whether it's through Monty Python or through the sitcom, the... the Forty Towers. He, he's such this, such a complete iconic figure, and I should imagine financially fairly secure. You're not going to, you're not going to be able to do anything to him. But the notion, simply because of that, the cancelled cultures that exist, it seems like an extremely lazy way of looking at the reality. Cleese must be in his eighties now, mustn't he? He must be, yeah, late seventies, early eighties. Um, but there was also an article. Cleese has come out and said he's going to do a series for GB News uh-huh. uh, on. Cancel culture, um, and he's been. That's why he's been turning up. He's been out talking about it and promoting it. But Hugh Linehan in the Irish Times had an article called "John Cleese." He's not the free speech messiah. He's a very naughty boy, and it was again relatively. You can write actually some decent stuff. Not one of his better pieces, but it was again. It was making the point that this entire thing is kind of ridiculous. But I wanted to discuss that in relation to a particular article that came out in National Review. Yeah, called "Inside the Shameful Cancellation of Jihad Rehab," a film which is now called "The Unredacted." And the in- there's a couple of interesting things here. The first thing is that it's by a guy called Sebastian Junger. Now, Junger is not someone who's going to be familiar to a lot of people on the right, unless you're particularly interested in certain aspects of um, military affairs, in which case he's, he's written on that. 
But he's the kind of guy you would expect more to see in The Guardian than the National Review. Yeah, if he was writing in the United States, you'd expect him to be writing in The Atlantic, not in the National Review. Maybe the New York Times, depending on... Yes. Yeah. But that kind of that kind of yeah. spacing. But he came out and said that um, none of his normal outlets would run the article he wrote for the National Review, which is, again, Michael, about a film. So not you know the most politically controversial thing out there. But no one else would touch it, which I think is interesting to begin with. But the article is about... Uh, it's a film called The Unredacted. Um, it used to be called Jihad Rehab. I haven't seen it. I think it's had a very limited run. But what it basically involved was a uh, young female director, I think it might have been her first film, but I'm not entirely sure, managed to get one-on-one interviews with a number of people who'd been in Guantanamo Bay and put this film together. Now, the film is described as exceptionally sympathetic and humanising to these people. So, not red meat for the American right-wing crowd, you would have thought. No, in fact, uh, several people are talking about it on Twitter who had seen the film said that the thing that puzzled them most about the reaction to it was the fact that having watched it, they had it had created a sense of empathy or sympathy to the men that were being in, in that were being interviewed. That you came away with an understanding, a sympathetic understanding or an empathetic understanding of why they'd ended up where they'd ended up. So they certainly weren't caricatured or demonized. It wasn't some kind of Islamophobic Arab bashing. The filmmaker is herself um, American. I think it said she was a, a volunteer firefighter when September 11th happened and that that inspired her to move over to the Middle East to try and understand how this had happened. Not jingoistic. Not jingoistically patriotic. And the interesting thing there was the film starts getting ready to go out. Everyone apparently thinks it's fantastic that it's, you know, absolutely worthwhile as a piece of filmmaking. And then people start pointing out that the author is not is neither Muslim nor from the Middle East. Oh. And this becomes a problem. And it becomes a problem to such an extent that the film's backers back themselves away from it, saying that it is has hurt people. And then Sundance gets involved, the you know, probably one of the most famous film festivals in the world. Yes. And starts creating problems for it as well. And basically, the, the long and short of it is that this filmmaker's career is largely destroyed. The film is seen by basically no one. And ultimately, it comes down to the fact that the filmmaker is white and not Muslim, rather than anything about how the film presents the people inside it. Now, some people say that they don't like the title, which is why it's now called Unredacted instead of Jihad Rehab. But that's about all they've got. This seems to be a well-made film involving people who are highly familiar with this area, which portrays them in a sympathetic or at least human fashion. So again, not something you think the right would be, like the cultural right is, is going to be all that fond of uh, promoting. Like there's not a lot of cultural cachet there in supporting something like this. But now we have a situation where it gets cancelled by the progressives and then an article telling people how it got cancelled cannot be placed in a left-wing or even arguably neutral venue. And so the left-wing author has to run it in the National Review. That's somebody like the New York Times, for example, would have chosen not to run an article like this is very strange. And if that is the case, indicative of something which, I mean, which goes kind of beyond cancel culture, because cancel culture too often is tied up as we see it. I mean, I, I think... I suspect the the iceberg of cancel culture 
is is you know eight, as it's famously eight tenths below the surface, and it's small people in businesses and in schools or in small universities that get either shoved out to the side or just dropped because they don't have this acceptable billion stuff. But this is this is a going beyond that, isn't it? It's where the silence, it's it it's you can pretend it doesn't exist because it never gets in it never gets in to the mainstream. It never gets out there. It never it's a story that's never told. And a story that's never told is a story that never happened. I think but it does it does relate to the discussion about cancel culture. Right? A large part of it is people who have no experience of it either because they have the right opinions or because, and let's be honest here, they don't care enough about it to care if people attempt to try and cancel them. Gript gets quite a lot of emails from people thanking us for covering particular stories and people telling us that they're so thankful that we covered it because they could never bring it up because they would suffer some consequence of doing so, whether it's professional or social. And I think that the social element is the interesting element. It's the things that people will not say or things they will say that they don't believe because there is a narrowing range of acceptable social views that if you go outside, you will suffer an informal penalty for. I think that's actually the, the, the freezing effect of it. Mm-hmm. It's, le- it's less people like John Cleese saying something because he's so insulated and more the effect it has on general members of the public. Which is why, Michael, when we talk about free speech, I'm always so sure to say that free speech is not limited to the First Amendment. Yes. Free speech is is a civic or philosophical view that there should be space for debate inside society. And not even just debate, but people saying things you just frankly disagree with and don't want to debate. It's also true, I suppose, that if you hold a certain opinion, and that is the, the opinion which is, shall I say, on the right side of history or appears to be the opinion of the moment, and you don't hear anybody else, for whatever reasons, the social pressures or whatever, you don't hear any other opinions expressed, except occasionally by people who you do perceive as being on the fringes of society, the fringes of politics, people who you are happy to just simply consider to be bad people, that you will come to the, the conclusion, well, that you, the opinion you hold is the opinion held by the vast majority of right-thinking people. But I think history tells us that it is perfectly possible that a lot of the time people stay silent on the basis that they think, oh God, I think this, but that's a dangerous and bad thing to think. And everybody else thinks something different. And that was the kind of thing that held people in silence in the totalitarian regimes, say, in the before the fall of the Berlin Wall, that people didn't say stuff because they thought, well, they were in the minority. But the reality is that very often you may have an opinion which is actually held by 10 or 15% of the population. But because they're the people who are in charge, in a sense, of the public culture, that's the opinion that people just assume must be the dominant opinion of the culture. Where, in fact, there may be a large proportion of the population which doesn't actually hold that opinion at all but fears that social not it may and it may at times be economic it may be professional censure that you willing you 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 will suffer because of holding your opinion but i think you're right a lot of the time it's simple so, so i think the experience that a lot of people would have experienced in what was loosely called the gay community around the marriage referendum made that very clear that a year out it was perfectly possible for for people to have a variety of opinions about it and have debates and discussions and 
you know, you, you could have a heated argument about it, but then after that, it was just, you know, it was politics and you weren't going to fall out about it. But once you got, say, two, three months out from it, Gary, I can tell you, it became just impossible to have that conversation. So you didn't have it. And people would come and tell you secretly, privately, whispering in your ear that they believed X, Y, or Z, and then would absolutely come out with the opposite position when they were in a conversation which was in public with other people present. So they were, I mean, you could call it virtue signaling, you could call it lying, you could call it what you like. But I saw it, and I saw it happened many, many times. And there were people who became pariahs because of the opinions they held around around the marriage referendum and they were cast out i was told of an interesting one there recently by someone they were saying they they met someone for drinks that they hadn't said in a while and they ended up talking something about the transgender issue and i think bathrooms or something like that and the person loudly um decried them and and disagreed with them and then they both ended up in the bathroom together and the person leaned over and said, actually, I, I absolutely agree with you. I just didn't want to say it. But Michael, there were only two people in that conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's bizarre shit sometimes. It really is. But I just, I, I, know, I could understand if there were, you know, three or four of them, but I've never seen someone falsely state their own beliefs in a conversation in which they are the only two people there. Do you know what it's, it also, I think it also, it speaks to strongly, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of Jonathan Haidt. I mean, I'm not. I don't think that everything Haidt says is holy script scripture, or uh, some of the stuff is necessarily repli- replicable uh, when he's talking about certain kinds of experiment, social experiments. But one of his central tenets they keep hammering away at is that human beings are very. We are groupish. We are tribal, and I think that this is an app. This is the absolute demonstration of that. How ultimately groupish and tribal we are and how important it is to us. And maybe like at a pre-conscious level, I don't say something, but a pre-rational level, that we are so afraid of saying something which puts us outside of the group, outside of the tribe, something that will expose us and make us individuals. You know that that fantastic scene in The Life of Brian, where Brian comes out to the crowd and he says, you're all individuals. And they all go, we're all individuals. And one little voice says, I'm not. Well, it's a bit like everybody, we are, we really, I'm not saying everybody, some people are temperamentally disagreeable, and I'd say that in the technical sense, so so they don't, they care less, not that they don't care at all, because that's, I think, heading towards either narcissism or psychopathy, but they care less about being in the, in, in the group and being accepted. Most of us, it's very important that we can disappear into the group. And I think this is a manifestation of that, that there is a, something which approaches a terror. And you see this in in, in agrarian societies. Jap- Japan was famous for this in pre-modern Japan. That it was a, a, a society which was pretty low in resources. And you life in the Japanese farming village was tough. And you, 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 you survived as a community. And the the punishment, the, the harsher sanction, was to be excluded. And it was basically a sense of death. The, that sense of being, if you're socially excluded, you became isolated, you became atomic. That that was the end of you. And we, even now, when many of many people seem to exist more on social media than they do in actual, in, in human societies, we still have that deep ingrained fear of suddenly becoming the zebra that's at the edge of the herd. And the, lion, the lions are going to come and get us. I mean, I, we've talked about it before, 
but I, I'll just bring it up again because people people do not realize the degree to which their beliefs are shaped by those around them and how difficult it can be to disagree with a group, particularly when you're not invested in the topic of discussion. Absolutely, that's really important. But I just wanted to mention, it was called the Ash Conformity Experiment. Now, people may have seen this before. It involved a group, I think it was six participants, and they would sit around and they would look at different um, drawings. Now, these drawings were of just straight lines of different heights. Now, sometimes all the lines were the same size. Sometimes the lines were different. Sometimes they were told, here's five lines or three lines. Here's the one we want you to pick. Which one is it, A, B, or C? Yeah. And they ran the experiment uh, the first time and they asked all these groups and nearly everyone got it correct. I think there was uh, a 1% error rate, something like that. And then they ran it again. And what they did was they replaced everyone in the room but one person with a patsy who would give the wrong answer. Sorry, as in the five people would give the wrong answer and the patsy was the actual person who was being studied. Only 25% of participants never gave the wrong answer when the people around them told them that the obviously wrong answer was the correct one. As in telling them that lines that were clearly different lengths were the same size. And there were about a third of people who went along on every opportunity, every time the group said something that was obviously incorrect, about a third of people went with it. Now that makes absolute sense, to, I, I think, to both of us. Uh, we've talked before uh, about situations where particularly connected maybe to identity issues or gender issues. People come out with statements which, on the face of them, just seem to be mad. And the kind of thing that if you'd said as recently as five or six years ago, everybody would have said, that's mad, but they don't know. And I, 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 I've been trying to come up with a verb for it, and it's I, I'm borrowing slightly from the symptoms. There's something like imagining that they want to make us, they want to make us all crazy. They're trying to make us go mad. It is, I suppose, just another version, but a very, very high version of the Emperor's New Clothes, where we're all standing around, and we've all agreed the Emperor is fantastic, it's wonderful, oh yes, so courageous, so wonderful, so beautiful. And we're all waiting for the little boy to come along and point and say, no, no, he's naked, what are you talking about? But the the little boy who's pointing and is naked, he's getting rarer and rarer. This is something I know has happened to me, and I think it's happened to you, Gary. You've, you you uh, you meet a, a TD, an actual TD, who says to you, "Oh, I was listening to the podcast the other day. You're, you're, you're that was very good. You said something about this, and that. I thought it was a very good point you made about that. Oh no, that one you did on energy, or that one on housing, or whatever. That was very good. And you say to them something, joke, half in, you know, as I say, half in, half in joke, whole in earnest." Yeah, that's that's right. You, you you wouldn't consider giving us an old retweet on Twitter, or and they look at you and laugh. And say, "Are you mad? Me retweet something from that? Just stop." And these these are like members of parliament, and they regard the idea that you might retweet something we had said on a, po- a podcast that we had done. And I don't think that we are that far out on the axis that we're heading towards. Are we? Ha- the hard far right, I, I think we're moderate centre right, Berkey and Tories, aren't we? But we know they wouldn't dream of doing that because of the potential contagion to them 
that they might be associated with people like us. I mean, I, I will say actually just on the ash experiment, when they examined the reasons why that was, one of the reasons given was that people assumed the group knew more than them. And despite the fact you could look at it and visually see that they were wrong, if five people are all telling you what you're seeing isn't true, apparently enough of the time that's going to get you to go, okay, maybe it isn't. But the other one was purely that they wanted the people they were with to like them and they wanted to fit into the group. And if you start sharing things, Michael, that are, you know, have all the grace and subtlety of a you know, a lead balloon, which I think is probably where we are, you know, you could piss some people off unnecessarily. But I have far more sympathy for those patsies because they're in a room, shall we say, if I understand. And they're saying they're seeing one thing, but the other five people are saying something else. That's not what's happening at the moment. It seems to me, and I may be wrong, but it seems to me we have 10 people in the room. One person is talking all the time and speaking with great confidence and certainty and moral authority. And then the eight people in the room are sitting in total silence and just looking around and saying, please don't ask me, please don't ask me. And then you've got the last guy going, really? No, I'm sorry, that just seems. And looking looking to the other eight people who are sitting there silent, but they're saying nothing because they're terrified that they might say the wrong thing. And also this other guy, he seems to be really sure. And he's quoting articles. And he's in, he's writing in the Irish Times and he was interviewed on primetime. So, you know, I mean, they wouldn't have put somebody on primetime unless they really knew about it, would they? And they wouldn't publish articles in the Irish, in the Irish, in the Irish Times or the Indo unless they really knew about it. And while I, it might sound mad to me, I just must be wrong. So I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to say nothing. Most of the time, it's not that most of the people in the room are saying the one one thing which is changing the opinion. of It's most of the people are saying nothing, but one person is speaking with confidence and is getting, and if we go back to something you were, you were talking about before, which was why you thought the ICCL was the most pernicious group, was because it gave this kind of penumbra of respectability to certain kinds of positions or opinions that it shouldn't do that most of the civic institutions in the country are are passively or actively cooperating with these people and giving them a sense of authority and res- and respectability that they don't deserve, they haven't earned, they don't have any expertise in. But that's the perception that's built up around them. So people look and say, oh, they must be right and I must be wrong. I mean, it, I, it looks like it's longer and it looks like it's blue, but they said it's shorter and it's red and, well, they know more than me, so I'm going to shut up and keep my head down because I don't want to look stupid or bigoted or nasty or racist or phobic or whatever it is. It is, it is, as the Chinese would say, an interesting time to be alive. Well, I think we should leave it at that and we should actually be back next week bar Michael doing something. Oh, it's not always me. Sometimes, sometimes people go marching around the bogs of Kerry for their entertainment and sometimes people eat Bad takeaways and get sick. I remember when that happened. It's not always Michael, but, but it is sometimes Michael. Michael. I, I'm not willing to concede that. But anyway, we will be back with all things being equal on Sunday. You know the old story of uh, okay, it's it's usually attributed to Samuel Beckett. A man goes to a very fancy and lovely dinner party and sits down beside a woman, and over the course of the conversation, he asks her if she would, for the sum of a million pounds 
sleep with him. And she says, well, for, the, for that kind of money, I would. And he says, well, I've got a tenner with me. And she says, uh, Mr. Beckett, what do you take me for? He says, well, we've established that. Now we're merely haggling about price. I've heard it described to Shaw, or Bernard Shaw, but an Irish, an, an Irish playwright, certainly. What do you think I am, Mr. Shaw, a prostitute? Madam, we've already established that. Now we're simply discussing the price. So we've already established that it, it, it is often your fault. Now we're merely <laughs> determining exactly how often. Now we're just talking about frequency. Okay. Well, on that <laughs> note, have a good weekend and have a great week. And we will be back on Saturday. Sunday. Bye-bye. <laughs> Finally got to compare you to a prostitute. over. <laughs> All the best. Ha, ha, ha.